Hello, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Cosmo Macero and I are talking business and news on 321 Go, including an interview with David Paleologos, National Pole Star, on this week's elections in Massachusetts. And our own Ann Murphy talks to Joanne Simons and Tim Brown of Northeast Arc, a local nonprofit organization helping to support people with disabilities be full participants in their communities. And in two minutes with Tom, our CEO, Tom O'Neill, discusses this week's elections here in Massachusetts and what it means for politics not only in our state, but around the country going forward. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, the New York Times makes a historic and basically unprecedented decision to publish an anonymous op-ed from what they say is a senior Trump administration official who describes a chaotic West Wing where a resistance movement has emerged to counter President Trump's worst instincts. No, it's not a TV movie script. It's the real thing we'll discuss. And change can't wait. That's the political theme in this primary election week where Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley stunned and crushed longtime incumbent Congressman Michael Capuano in the Democratic primary election for the 7th Congressional District seat. Other surprises, too, top pollster David Pelelogos discusses with our own Kyan Isaacson. Finally, Nike debuts its new campaign with former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, resulting in everything from plummeting shares and sneaker-burning protests to predictions it could be their biggest win since the debut of the Air Jordan. Marketing genius or PR faux pas will discuss right now. Okay, in unprecedented times, unprecedented things happen, Kyan, this week. The New York Times makes the decision, uh, the uh, astonishing decision, to publish an op-ed from a senior Trump administration official anonymously, with no name. Um, it, 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 is, it, 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 it certainly is a slippery slope. It has prompted a debate... Uh, of epic proportions over the decision to do this. The content of the, of, of the piece is essentially uh, a call to action that says we, within the White House, a resistance movement has emerged to counter the president's worst instincts. It, it, it's really a devastating piece, um, uh, and predictably the president uh, has responded as you would expect. But for the purpose of this discussion, it really comes down to what do you think of this decision? Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because no less than, say, as an example, Dan Kennedy himself, the media critic and Northeastern University professor, former guest on uh, 321 Go, has said he has zero problems with this decision. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I'm saying it, it is a slippery slope. Once you've opened that door, to take the unprecedented move to publish an unnamed editorial, op, an op-ed, you might be able to close it, but people are going to come knocking and knocking in the future for that kind of consideration. What do you think? 
anytime you do anything unprecedented, you open the door because you have now set a precedent. And that's the unfortunate thing about sort of going out on a limb and taking a risk and doing something this bold and this big. Um, you know, it. I'm not surprised that the, the Times chose to do it. I wonder if they were the only outlet that this person shopped with this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a really, that's a good question. You know, it, it, did they start with the Washington Post? Did they try the Wall Street Journal? Did that, you know, who, who knows? Um, but I think that the Times has always been sort of a little bit ahead of where they think journalism, you know, is, go- they're thinking about where journalism is going, what's in the best interest, what, you know, but it also sort of solidifies for the other side, you know, this idea of the media bias, which is, you know, kind of, it doesn't help the, the greater the greater problem it's, there. It, we just had editorials around the country a couple of weeks ago saying we are not the enemy. Um, I think that this didn't really help that in the president's eyes. Not that I think anything is going to make that better, but for me, it's sort of his, it gives him more reason to double down. That makes me angry. But I think, uh, you know, I think you said it really well. Unprecedented times, unprecedented moves. Think people are, people have to get creative right now. It's pretty easy to call an anonymous piece in the Times fake news, right? So it's, it's exactly. kind of playing right into their in, into the hands of those, bet. those who would do that. I, For I those of us that trust the Times, we trust the vetting process sure, that they've which, talked which they, about. Which they, by the yes. way, went through de- details to explain to their readers. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes down to, in a case like this, weighing the gravity of the information, the importance of it, the importance of the journalism versus the uncomfortable circumstances or terms under which you, you can publish it. And, and it's and not the first time that we've we've seen that. No, as an it's issue. not. But you can be darn sure it's it's it was uncomfortable. It still is for the times to have done this, but they made that decision and and uh, and, and it and it's pretty remarkable. Um, I think also it, it wasn't a, it was a move made in the name of journalism and 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 and, and what the times probably believes or, or believes is, is is the better uh, the best interest of the country, but from a publicity or PR standpoint, it happens to be a big publicity event. I'm not calling it a stunt; it's an event, meaning it has generated tremendous attention for the New York Times, and quite frankly, has instantly created a deep who is deep throat like pursuit of this person. And yes. and there are people who are saying there's no quite there's no way. The anonymity of this person will last for 20 or 30 years because you can figure that out or, or, or someone will drop the dime. or the, I don't know if that's the case. But there's now a, a mystery to be solved, and it's a major publicity event, not a stunt, an event. And on the other side of that is there's now this the host of journalists, some even at the New York Times, who are you know, sort of asking themselves, are we now supposed to figure out who this person is? Do we go down our investigative journalism path? Because for people who don't understand how newspapers work, the editorial and the news side are separate um, in terms of how they approach things and and those conversations that are happening. I think, but they had all of these conversations first. That's what I, you know what I I mean? People need to. I wonder how granular they got, but I imagine the editors probably had to say, hey, look. I would imagine pretty granular. We're offering you anonymity and protection, and, and, and that's a bond that we won't break. You cannot expect the journalists, including our own, will not try as hard as they can to pursue they your are. identity through other means. That's who they are. And, and that's I, what they do. I'm guessing that the person that wrote this knows that. I don't think, 
My guess is also he or she isn't planning on needing to be anonymous for 20 or 30 years. No. They just got to get through what's happening here. It, 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 <laughs> with this administration, it could be 20 or 30 minutes, right? Yeah, you never know. So, um, right. It was a bold move. It was yeah. definitely a bold move either uh, way. A, a, fascinating, a fascinating development. Nobody has their finger on the pulse of the electorate better than David Paleologos, national pollster from Suffolk University. He sat down with our own Kyan Isaacson this week to talk about the remarkable results in the Massachusetts primary election. Here they are. So we are here with director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, David Paleologos, the resident polling expert. It's been an interesting week in Massachusetts politics. I think my tweet on election night was, wow, what a night in M.A. Pauly land. Um, wh what are your takeaways? I mean, you look at this from a very sort of more analytical and different point of view than the rest of us. Sure. You know, I think the, the benefits of having a majority-minority congressional district really were, reali was, were realized last night in that Ayanna Presley not only beat the incumbent Michael Capuano. He, he she she won by a wide margin. I mean, we were looking at you know it, it, there wasn't a lot of polling out there, and my thought was that this is probably this would be the recount race, uh, not the third congressional district. This was going to be the race that if it were decided one way or the other, it would be very close. I never expected an 18 point margin. And when you look at sort of the, the breakdown, you know, I thought going into this, you were probably going to see Mike Capuano running up big margins in places like Everett, East Boston and Chelsea and so on at Randolph and staying close in other areas. And the exact opposite happened. You had Ayanna Presley winning by very wide margins in her home base, and then being competitive. I mean, she only lost uh, Chelsea, and you know, by a couple hundred votes, and and even in Somerville, you know, she almost she almost beat Capuano in in Somerville. So, you know, that I think accounted for Capuano's early concession early in the evening. So I think you know her her message was change can't wait. Is that is that what resonated? Is that what did it? Or is there sort of something that we're not, you know, we haven't put our finger on quite yet when it comes to this really sort of, it's starting to look like a sweeping change that's happening throughout the country yeah. in a lot of races where people think, you know, no, we're, it's it's good, it, you know, status quo, and, and people are coming in and saying not well, so fast. Well, you think about the slogan, change can't wait. And you and you and you see so many of the themes coming into play here. You know, you have the long incumbency of Mike Capuano. You have the fact that people probably it was a, a, a poll finding where people were saying they liked Ayanna Presley, but they weren't sure whether this was the right race. Maybe she should have run for something else. Um, and, and her being an agent of change, uh, basically, even though she, you know did have political experience, was, was labeled a newcomer, and that was very appealing, and it was a motivating force not only for her, but for many other races in that congressional district, too. 
So, you know, I don't know whether she was the windfall beneficiary of local GOTV polls or whether they were the windfall beneficiaries of her organization and her grassroots effort. But the bottom line is that you had a you, you, you had major change at all levels of government at and within that congressional district. And it makes one wonder about, you know, the midterms in November and in 2020. Now, granted, this was a majority minority district, um, you know, so, you know, the country isn't that. And obviously, you know, the state isn't that demographic makeup. But, you know, it it definitely resonated, and it was one of the stories of, of last night. Now, there were other congressional races where you had kind of similar matchups where the exact opposite happened. You know, in the first in, in the first congressional district, for example, you you didn't have, a, a, you know, uh, a district that had that composition, mm-hmm. but you did have a very similar matchup. You had a, an older white male incumbent, Richard Neal who was embedded in the leadership of the Democratic House, who was being challenged by an African-American woman, an attorney from Springfield who was Muslim, and had a lot of the progressive uh, backing in a lot of the areas that were in and around Berkshires and Hampshire County. And that outcome was totally different. That was 71-29 in favor of Richard Neal. Now, some of that was due to the lack of money and visibility and uh, endorsements that uh, Ayanna Presley received. But, you know, it did speak to the fact that these races are all local and uh, that all politics is local. Mm, well, that, that means a lot in this building. You know that. Um, before we go, we've got the 3rd Congressional District headed for a recount. It looks... It looks like. Um, was that your thinking that it was going to become sort of this very close, close race? It's fewer than maybe 60 votes currently separating the the two leading candidates. Well, you know, I don't I, I don't know. Again, there was not a lot of polling. A lot of the polling that was out there was margin of error polling um, in the public sphere. But anytime you have a race with 10 people taking bites at the apple and the, and the apple slices are small to start with, then the differences are often small as well. Um, you know, it's very rare that you'll have 10, a 10 candidate field and someone getting, you know, 50% of a vote or even, you know, 35% of a vote. In this case, you know, uh, you, you had a very diverse field. Um, you know, I think uh, Laura Trahan benefited, who's the front runner right now. She thinks she benefited from the fact that Bobby Italian's campaign kind of imploded at the end of the campaign. And Juana Matias's base really didn't grow beyond Lawrence. If you look at the, the, the vote totals. And so it really was a two-person race. And you saw this with Rufus Gifford, you know, bowing out early as the returns were coming in, Barbara Italian as well. And uh, they were within the top five five uh, finishers. And so it kind of became this two-person race. But, you know, when you think about, and this, this kind of speaks to ranked choice voting, I think, which we've talked about in a previous conversation, which is being featured in the Maine election, the state of Maine, you know, we've got a situation in this district where the congressional winner uh, will only receive 22% of the vote 
which tells me that, you know, when 78% of the Democrats in that district vote against you, and yet you become the, the you know, the, you know, the, the congressional nominee, the Democratic Party, and, you know, probably the winner in the general election, it does speak to the fact that, you know, in these kinds of races, a very small sliver of the population can determine the outcome, and that's what's going to happen here. Wow. It is, it's interesting to think of it that way. Um, so I know you've, uh, we've only mm-hmm. got a couple, a couple more minutes, but uh, any last-minute takeaways as we look ahead? We've got more elections mm-hmm. sure. coming. Sure. You know, I think, you know, we've got, we're, we're going to be releasing a, a bunch of different polling next week. Uh, Nevada, we're going to hopefully get a Massachusetts poll in the next couple of weeks. In the field, uh, once things shake out, we get the ballot question wording officially, and and so we're looking forward to that. Uh, in terms of this uh, last night's election, I was surprised that that uh, Charlie Baker, um, you know, had the kind of opposition that he had. Um, he actually re- received less percentage-wise in his primary than Jay Gonzalez did. You know, Gonzalez got 64%. He and, and many more votes, to double the amount of votes than did Charlie Baker. And I think that presents an interesting opportunity for Gonzalez going forward, despite the fact that Baker's popularity is, is through the roof and has been through the roof in all of the general election polling that's been done up to this point. Lots to look out for. So we will, of course, have to have Absolutely. you back. Be All well. right. Well, Take thank care. you, David. Have sure. a great day. Bye bye. Depending on who you talk to, Nike's new Colin Kaepernick campaign is either a huge win, marketing-wise and public relations-wise, or a massive PR disaster. I guess it remains to be seen, though. I- all I know is everyone, Cayenne, is talking about Nike. Yes. That can't be a bad thing. I know the stock dived for a couple of days, but and people are lighting their feet on fire because that's what you're doing when you light your sneakers on fire while you wear them. You're lighting your feet on fire. <laughs> Not a smart move. It's so preposterous. Everyone's talking about this campaign about Nike. And, and by the way, the ad, at least that first ad to debut, wow, powerful stuff, right? You know, everyone is talking about Nike and will be talking about Nike because this is just the beginning. This is a whole ad concept for them. So whatever has started is going to continue. It was a, you know, I think we're talking bold moves this week. Um, it, it was a bold move. I think they're going to run their ad during the Thursday night NFL opener. Um, there's a lot of risk. Again, I think there was a lot of people that sat around tables for, for a while and talked through all of them. My gut tells me they come out on top. I think people that like Nike and are devoted to it for the brand that it is and sort of, you know, it's been fashion forward for a long time. They sponsor a lot of great athletes. Those people aren't going anywhere. They're going to keep buying Nike. The ad to me, call me a bit of a a schmuck, but I was totally moved by it. Um, I think it's incredibly powerful. I have a five-year-old boy. I want to play it on on repeat for him. It celebrates remarkable people who've overcome unbelievable odds. And encourages you to think big and dream big. And there's just, there's nothing wrong with that. Look, Nike has has really... Once again, they, they, they've, they've, they're right at the pivot point of a, of, of, a, of a 
you know, a major cultural sort of dynamic, something that everyone relates to one way or the other. Yes. And, and they've positioned themselves right there. And I think it's, 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 uh, it's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of strong opinions. Um, I'm excited to see what comes next from Nike, quite honest. All right, Cayenne, thanks a lot. Okay, then, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Cayenne, we'll talk to you again next week. I'll be here. Awesome. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Northeast Arc. This is Ann Murphy. I'm fortunate to have with me today Joanne Simons, the CEO of Northeast Arc, and Tim Brown, who's the Director of Innovation and Strategy at Northeast Arc. Welcome. Thanks for coming today. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, we have a lot of great things to talk about in this very interesting subject. And I first want, Joanne, to just give us a little overview of Northeast Arc and the services you provide. Well, uh, we provide so many services that the easiest thing to do is tell you that we change lives. We change lives of hundreds of uh, thousands of people with intellectual disabilities in our history. And on a yearly basis, we touch the lives of 10,000 people with intellectual disabilities and autism in uh, Massachusetts. And we start from birth and we go to the end of life and we provide services not only to the individual but to their families from early intervention to employment to residential services to recreation, Special Olympics, uh, day supports. Um, and we do that creatively, innovatively, um, efficiently, and effectively. Well, that's it's an unbelievable organization that I have had some contact with. And we're going to hear a little bit more about a really interesting program that you've been doing for over a year. Can you tell us about this cool thing called the Arc Tank and how the idea was created? Sure. The Arc Tank was created with a um, million-dollar gift by uh, Stephen Rosenthal of um, Marblehead, who is the chairman of a uh, company called West Shore here in Boston. And he challenged us to do something different in philanthropy. Um, he was interested in doing something disruptive in a positive way. So he developed the concept of the Arc Tank, which allows us to judge and award up to $200,000 a year to individuals and groups in a competition like the Shark Tank. And it's just like the Shark Tank, only the judges are a little gentler. And we have slightly less money to give out. But $200,000 is a large sum. And this year will be our second uh, year doing the Arc Tank. We do it in partnership partnership with the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation, which is a significant partner because as those of uh, our listeners remember, uh, President Kennedy challenged us for a moonshot. He was going to put a man on the moon. And we now talk about big, bold ideas as being a moonshot. And so what we wanted to do and what Steve Rosenthal wanted to do was pr find those moonshots in disability and autism, those things that could move the needle in a way that traditional philanthropy and government has not been able to do. It's really amazing when you think about all the resources and smart people we have around and funding that this is really a unique idea. And, uh, you know, this year's competition, you're going to see some different things. Maybe you'll see some of the people return. Uh, could you just give us a little overview of Arc Tank 2.0 and, and this year's competition? 
So this year we're hoping to reach even a larger audience than last year. Last year we were lucky to have over 100 organizations or people apply for the contest. Um, and of those 100, seven came forward as finalists. Our goal this year is really to, to use the experience we had last year to beef up the applications and to get more people involved and engaged. The application process is really simple. Um, there's a short online form that people fill out. It's on our website and they are due on September 18th. September 18th is going to come up before you know it. Well, there's $200,000 up for grabs, if you will, or up to compete for. But do you have any good advice, some inside information there we can let people know about for aspiring applicants? What makes a good proposal? As Joanne mentioned earlier, you have to think big and think bold. We're looking for ideas that are going to reach the maximum amount of people over time. So an idea may be starting off as a pilot project, but then can be replicated across the state or across the country. So that's the real key concept is, is thinking outside the box, starting off with an idea that may be a regional or a small project, but that can be easily re replicated. So think of how Uber started. You know, Uber started in one city. And it doesn't matter where in the world you go, you can fire up your app and you can use Uber or Lyft or whatever, a multitude of transportation systems. So that's what we're hoping like for. Like game-changing things Is there something, for this population. Exactly. Something that could be game-changing. But we also don't want people to be put off. They don't have that game-changing. It may not be Uber and it may not be a food delivery system, but it may be for our industry something as significant. So the concept yeah. really is, is there's so many people who are involved or impacted in this field. And it's really, think about what would you do if you got $200,000 to improve either your life or the life of the people you love or support? That's what this contest is about. It's allowing people to you know, go back through their life experiences and say, this is an idea that I wish I could, you know, could have implemented. This would have saved my child, myself, or the people I work with, you know, heartache or being able to change their lives in a positive way. So, you know, that's who we're really trying to reach out to are people who have the experience and want to make a change. Why do you think that this type of thinking or this, this type of approach to servicing people with intellectual disabilities and autism hasn't happened before? Because maybe the mindset was so programmed, if you will, in the traditional ways of delivery of services? Well, I think Steve uh, Rosenthal would say, because in the past, innovation was how to respond to cost-cutting of your budgets. You know, so many of us, and there's been in this industry for a long time, have really seen over the years when government has come in and had to reduce a budget or there's been a you know re reduction by 5%, you have to take a 2% hit or there are new regulatory challenges that cost money. That's been government's been, that's unfortunately, our innovation has been responding to those kinds of situations. Um, I think that donors and philanthropists want to see the largest return on their investment and are sometimes a little skittish about taking a risk. And failure is okay. We're not. We're hoping. We're not hoping for any failures, but I think we would love to see um, those folks look at this as an as a population worthy of taking some risks. 
Well, kudos to Steve Rosenthal and to you folks to actually put, for putting this together. Uh, what do you think is the biggest impact that the first year of the working with the Arc Tank has had in kind of having people realize that there's an opportunity to be creative? And you've been seeing some interesting things happen, Tim. I think the biggest impact has been people being able to think outside the box and believing or hoping that there's going to be someone there to help support them. So many of the applicants last year who didn't make it into the finalists were able to use their applications for other social challenges. Um, we've had people who I've, I've heard about and followed that have submitted to, to other like competitions that may have gotten more mentoring or support, maybe not the financial piece that we're offering, who will be coming back this year <clears throat> in hopes to be able to apply um, for our funding again. So I think that's been a, a huge impact within the human service network and with families is that you know people are, are now starting to think outside of what typical services look like. And those are the people who have the most direct you know, effect to the with well, the We services. also want to challenge the business, the entrepreneurial right. world, the startups to think about what they might currently be doing, with not to change their startup orientation, but what they're currently doing and how it could be expanded to include people with disabilities. And we would be willing to fund that piece of it. We're not just looking for human service people. We're not looking to talk to the choir, so to right. speak. We really want those new innovative Inventors, folks. thinkers, create, outside, as you say, and outside the box. Last year, I want you to know that four uh, groups received funding, shared the $200,000, not equally. Some as modest as uh, $2,000, and some, I think the largest gift was... 85000 $85,000. Um, there were also groups that didn't make it into the final seven to compete that received recognition as being um, in the holding tank. And just by virtue of being in the holding tank and being highlighted that day, they received the attention of other donors. So we really want to encourage people to apply because they, they may not win, they may not make it to the ARC tank, but they may make it outside the tank and they're going to get the attention of hundreds of people. There is one example I just want you to talk about that people w might be able to resonate with with one of the um, the winners last year. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, North Shore YMCA of North Shore's WaterWise program. That program was really inspired by a story that the CEO heard about of a family member who had a child on the autism spectrum and the person, the child went through swimming programs, could swim fine at the pool at the Y. When they left that um, program or left that center, they were at a family's house and the child actually um, fell into the pool and couldn't figure out how to swim. It was a new location. So what the Y did is, is they started doing some research and realized that the number one leading cause of traumatic death in young people with autism is drowning. And so their program and model was based off of using ABA and BCBA therapists who specialize in working with people with autism in teaching swimming. And so changing the environment, um, providing the atmosphere that the child will learn the best in, but also coupling that with um, providing coaching and mentoring and support for the parents, teaching them what to look for as they're traveling um, and going from location to location. 
And it's amazing. And we, we're rooting for this program, obviously, because the Y is such a you know, large organization. And if you can make this program work here, you know, in the North Shore, what are the possibilities? And the North Shore Y has many swimming pools. So I think there's 13 pools that can, this can be rolled out into. But just imagine that if this grant, this award saved one life, then there isn't a monetary value that we can place on the, the child's life. And so we think that we've already way exceeded any um, expectation uh, for this program. We just hope that people are uh, go to our website and or just Google the Arc Tank. You don't even have to remember the website. The Arc which, Tank, yes. Which is www.ne-arc.org. You can go there, but just do the Arc Tank. You'll find it. Watch. There's a three-and-a-half-minute video. You'll feel, you'll be, um, I think, as excited as we are. And we hope that people will come to uh, the event on November 27th. It's from 2 to 5 at the Kennedy Library. It's free. We just ask you to RSVP because uh, we do provide some great uh, food, and we want to make sure we have enough. Well, we hope we can have you back on, obviously, to talk about the Arc Tank uh, and the, the next phase of that, but all of the other innovative and creative ideas that you're working on at Northeast Arc. I thank you for coming on Away On Air podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Ann Murphy and the team from Northeast Arc. Up next, we have Two Minutes with Tom. So Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Hi, Kyan. How are you? It's always nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. OA on Air. At the uh, OA on Air studio. Looking very good these days. So it's election week here in Massachusetts. And um, it was it's been interesting so far. Lots of uh, races didn't pan out exactly or the way people expected, or maybe they did, depending on um, you know your thing. But I think the biggest sort of surprise for people was the seventh district uh, Capuano Presley race. Yeah, Ayanna Presley really ran a very good campaign. I think invisible to the traditional political eye. To be very honest with you, a lot of it was done with uh, with uh, with high tech. A lot of it was done in communities that typically don't vote. And uh, frankly, when you have a very low voter turnout, as we had yesterday, it, it, it usually signals that people are happy with incumbency. Um, it happens also that it was the day after the primary, uh, the day after Labor Day, excuse me. And um, because of that, fewer and fewer people, I think, found, found their way to the polls. We had about 18% of the electorate turnout in Massachusetts yesterday. But uh, in, in the areas that voted very high for Ayanna Presley, uh, almost 38 to 39 percent of the vote came out. So she really did a very good job of campaigning, getting out the vote, uh, both electronically as as well as a lot of shoe leather being, you know, being walking around the district that that uh, favored her greatly. Yeah, they really turned out the GOTV effort. Clearly, um, they they got the people to the to the polls. Yes, and vote. that was in the face of of the incumbent uh, Mike Capuano running a very good campaign himself, spending mm -hmm. a lot of money. Um, and a very well-respected, very well-respected man. Yeah, I, I think though that it was, uh, you know, it was it was generational. It was young progressives saying, "We're not waiting for our turn. We we want the turn now. We want to provide leadership for the future direction of America, and we're going to do it right now." I think that's and right. That's what's resonating. Well, her, you know, her tagline, her hashtag was uh, "Change can't wait," and it seems a lot of people really did respond, and that resonated with them. 
in light of everything else, I mean, we, we saw what happened in New York was it last month. Sorry, the summer went by really quickly with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, you could even hark back to Donald Trump becoming president, that there's some unrest happening. Well, I think a couple of things. I think um, the Democratic Party, in, in some ways, is really represented by by two elements and two philosophies, one more moderate than the other. And the Republican Party has its problems with two voices. One is that of President Trump, and the other is a more moderate arm of the Republican Party. Both parties trying to find their voice and, and trying to figure it out. The second point I'd make is that in a, in a uh, minority-majority district, like the 7th Congressional District, uh, if you're able to get the vote out, people are going to vote in, in the numbers that you see reflected in, in the base of that district. So you're going to have more minorities, you're going to have more women, and you're going to have younger people turning out and voting for someone like Ayanna Presley, who had a very good message for them. Mm-hmm. Now, sort of a larger scale, 30,000 feet above question, I think, is if the left is going more left and then the, the right is going more right, how do we find a middle ground and work together ever well, again? I, I think the middle ground will be found by the numbers of, of people who are running on the Democratic side for the U.S. House of Representatives. Everybody is not like that young woman who beat Joe Crowley in New York, who is an avowed socialist. Ayanna Presley is not a socialist. No. She is, I, I would call her a progressive mm-hmm. within the Democratic Party. So she's a very different configuration uh, than Cortez. But you, you have other people running in other states under the Democratic umbrella who are more moderate or, or more conservative. And that's the 30 to 35 new faces you're going to see in Congress that are going to form the new, the new majority. I think people that will have a question here will be the existing leadership on the Democratic side in Congress, Pelosi and Steny Hoya. You know, I, I think their ground is, is trembling a little bit, and I, I'm sure that some of those new faces are going to be looking for new leadership as well. New Speaker of the House. Could mean a new Speaker of the House. It could mean a new majority leader and majority whip. Uh, it, but it means new faces are coming into Congress to join some of the more moderate younger folks that are already there to change that leadership. We'll see what it looks like in November. Thanks, Tom. It's always nice to be here with you, Kenyan. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget, now that you've listened, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our own O'Neill & Associates website, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.